Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 24th of March, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Well, one year. One year, yes. So we'll get straight on with uh, uh, one year on. Uh, of course, yesterday was the uh, anniversary of lockdown. Uh, and I thought we would just uh, run through some of the massive successes that uh, lockdown has brought us. Uh, now, the Daily Mail uh, here, uh, this was uh, from Monday or, or maybe over the weekend. Uh, the shattering price of lockdown, huge impact on, of curbs on our health and economy is revealed after a year of COVID restrictions. Uh, and then they take it on to another subject, which, of course, is the uh, continuing, well, whatever it is that's going on between the EU and the UK with respect to vaccines. We might talk about that a little bit later. Um, but let's uh, let's see what else what we can say about it. So three million missed out on cancer checks after coronavirus put screening on hold. That's a, a report from December. So the situation's only worse at this point. Uh, we should also make the point that, of course, the uh, National Health Service has the longest uh, waiting lists possibly in its history, but certainly for a very long time now. Uh, act now to avoid thousands of extra heart attacks and strokes, ministers warned. You've got to say, Mike, that is a particularly cynical health line from I there, because uh, if we look at the, the adverse effects from vaccines, heart attacks and strokes is absolutely in that bracket. So there is going to be more of them. Uh, yes, but of course, this is mainly talking about the fact that the healthcare has been withdrawn from people yep. for normal, uh, non-COVID related things. Uh, and uh, almost half of young adults at clinical risk of mental health disorders and profound crisis, crisis study show, said The Telegraph uh, earlier on in March. I think this was the 15th. Uh, and uh, well, what have we got here? WebMD saying child suicides rising during lockdown. In fact, uh, many, many reports anecdotal reports at this point, because of course there's no actual statistics about the numbers of suicides caused by lockdown, uh, because the uh, inquiries haven't, the inquests haven't taken place, and so no formal uh, verdict has been reached. But enough evidence, anecdotal evidence is there to show that suicide rates, not just amongst youngsters, but amongst teenagers and young adults and older people, absolutely rising as a result of lockdown. So that's another lockdown success there. Um, and uh, well, what have you got here? Another lockdown success. This is uh, Alzheimer's Society. Lockdown isolation causes shocking levels of decline for people with dementia who are rapidly losing memory, speech and ability to dress and feed themselves. Um, so it continues to get better. Uh, what have we got here? Spiked saying, don't blame COVID for economic devastation. And this is an accurate headline because we look at the mainstream press uh, and it's constantly COVID has done this, COVID has done that, COVID has done the other thing. No, uh, lockdown policy has done these things. The policy of the government, the policy of secretaries of state and the prime minister and their officials have done this, not COVID. Um, and uh, well, in fact, quite a number of uh, scientific papers uh, this is Do Lockdowns Work? The literature uh, from uh, In Proportion 2, 30 plus papers suggesting lockdown is ineffective. Uh, well, it is ineffective at achieving the goals, the stated goals of lockdown, which is to prevent uh, deaths, because most of the deaths have, as we'll see in one second, have been caused by the lockdown itself. Um, so let's just look at the uh, the latest numbers from the uh, office, the latest graphs from the Office for National Statistics on excess mortality. And this is really stark uh, because what we see is excess mortality happening in April, May last year. And then over the summer months, if we look at hospitals, just an example, then over the summer months, we see significantly 
uh, negative excess mortality. In other words, the numbers of deaths have been well below the five-year average. Uh, we've seen the normal winter flu season kick in uh, towards September, October, November, uh, and the winter uh, in hospitals. And so we've seen some excess mortality there. And bringing it right up to date, we're well below the five-year average again in the latest week of numbers. Care homes, a similar situation, although there's some uh, question over whether the uh, excess mortality that happened this winter was caused by COVID or caused by vaccination. That uh, I think we've covered uh, on this programme in recent weeks. But you can see in care homes, since the vaccination programme began and the effects of that finished, uh, they are also below the five-year average. But the one area of the one area of the country where excess mortality is still well above the five-year average is people dying in their own homes. That's the bottom left-hand graph there. There was no summer uh, reduction. There was no, there is no reduction at the moment. People are dying in their homes because they're not getting the health care that they need. Uh, the NHS is not doing its job. The management has reoriented it towards a COVID uniquely and everything else is being turned down. So let's uh, look at the latest uh, total mortality from COVID-19, 126,000 people, or is it? Well, actually, we suggest that it, the number is much more likely to be this, 18,000 from COVID. The rest are from the lockdown and the effects of lockdown and the effects of the uh, reorganization of the NHS in the meantime. Now, how did we get to that figure? Uh, well, that's based on a number of statistics that have come from multiple countries who have looked already at their uh, COVID-19 mortality and began, if you remember, back in May last year or May or June last year when the Italians uh, looked at their uh, 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 spike of mortality and discovered that uh, only 12% of the people that had died had actually died of uh, COVID-19. Uh, the rest may have had a positive PCR test, but they had uh, other very significant underlying health conditions uh, or they had uh, not received the treatment that they otherwise should have. So 18,000, we think, is much more sensible number for the number of people that have actually died of it, uh, the rest of lockdown. Just add to that segment, Mike, over the last few days, I've been able to speak to a number of uh, health professionals working in mental health. And the, the story from all of them is the same. They are desperately worried uh, about mental health problems as a result of the COVID lockdown and in particular mental health problems with children, of which they are, they say they're very concerned about children going back to school uh, with the mask wearing and the separation and the testing and the fact that we, we have a, effectively a generation of children now being terrified that if they carry out any form of normal activity, they're at risk of dying of some bug. Mm. So uh, we, we will bring more information about the reports from those professionals to our, our viewers. But it's clear that within the professions, psychiatrists, um, psychologists and, and psychotherapists, that they are all sharing their concerns about the damage being done to our children. Um, now, I just want to put this up um, because We've been able to do another uh, episode of No Smoke Without Fire, specifically looking at vaccine adverse effects. And I'm going to say that there are a lot of people at the moment simply not aware that the data 
is there, but it's buried, deeply buried on the government's website. Um, so this is the area that you need to go to for vaccine adverse reactions. I'm just going to put up a clip of the chat that I had with former nurse Debbie Evans talking about uh, vaccine adverse reactions. And at the end of that video, which will, should be up by the, by the end of today or tomorrow, uh, you will be able to get a link directly to the information to check it yourself. But what we are talking about is based on the government's own statistics. It's just a clip. And if we if we stick on this uh, subject, so we're into a, a another section of this report uh, with cardiac arrest there. But at the bottom of the of the left-hand Pfizer table, um, it's saying that cardiac disorders in total, 1,226, of which there were 27 fatalities, and for AstraZeneca, 2,200, of which there were 38 fatalities. Now we're not seeing we're not seeing these statistics anywhere. We're not seeing these statistics uh, appearing on the BBC. We're not seeing. Uh, any leaflets coming through our door warning about these sorts of effects on people. Um, there can't be anything more serious than death or the fact <coughs> that you're going to have a, uh, a heart attack or some sort of heart problem. I, I no, almost don't know what to we're not even getting a leaflet, Brian, giving us the ingredients, giving us the side effects, giving us the information at all. We're not getting any of the information end of. And, and, and you know, this information that's coming out on the um, government website with the side effects, it's going nowhere. No one's talking about it anywhere and yet this is a black triangle medication and I know that we'll come on and talk towards the end about black triangle medications but that means it's got to be under exceptional scrutiny from everybody and yet no one's talking about it. So we'll say watch out for part three of No Smoke Without Fire, talking about vaccine adverse effects. And just to give people an extra taster, well, there's such a serious subject. We picked out this one, the loss of consciousness. Uh, very small text. Let's blow it up a bit. So for Pfizer, uh, we've got people suffering from a variety of effects. Lethargy, 764. Loss of consciousness, 100. And then we've got fainting and sleepiness. Well, sleepiness, 258. Fainting, 332. And if we bring up AstraZeneca, lethargy there, 1,518. 234 loss of consciousness. Uh, 517 for sleepiness. And 627 for fainting. So... Uh, we'll also highlight this one here because we've got a death. This is one of the things that you see as you work through all of these statistics is the deaths are there with sometimes some quite surprising um, causes. But why were we interested in this one here, loss of consciousness, uh, which we're bringing up today? Well, we had this email in. Hello, I'd like to share this rather shocking experience with you. I was walking home the other morning from visiting my shopping centre when I came across a car that was on the path, the lady standing over a man lying on the floor. She was on the phone to the ambulance service. I asked the man what had happened. He was a bit dazed and unsure of what did happen, but he believed he blacked out at the wheel of his car. 
The lady then told me she'd seen the car swerve across the lane, hit the curb and bounce up and land on the path, coming to a stop on the grass next to the path. She said she saw him get out of the car and collapse to the ground. She then told me that the man had told her that he'd never had blackouts before. He then tells us that he had the vaccine 20 minutes earlier. Amazing that no one is, was killed. I'm totally against this vaccine. So this is, uh, this is an incident here as told to us, but it does see that, that we seem that we should be concerned about these sorts of effects. And um, we've got another vaccine reaction come in. In fact, we've had quite a lot of them since we asked for people to tell us about their experiences. My 19-year-old A had the Oxford one as a carer. They didn't want it, but wanted to be able to travel abroad. They had the jab four weeks after testing positive for COVID and no one else in the house caught COVID, but then none of us had the flu jab either. About 24 hours after the Oxford jab, A had a sudden headache, felt very shaky and had to sit down. The temperature went from 37 to 38.7 in 10 minutes. And they said they felt dreadful because it's experimental and they were one of the early ones to get it. And they also suffer asthma, um, etc. Um, the person rang 111 and they sent an ambulance. The paramedics checked the person over and said, keep an eye on them. And if they get worse, go to hospital. When mentioning the time period between having COVID and getting the jab, one of the paramedics said she thought they had to wait 12 weeks between the two and the other paramedic thought it was four weeks. So they then said they don't get told any information, which is why they aren't sure. So we, we've got serious side effects which are being withheld from the general public in UK. Um, and we've got things happening, it would appear, as a result of those side effects. Uh, there was, uh, there have been a couple of uh, incidents of of car accidents uh, and so on, and there was some talk at one point about a recommendation that people don't drive their cars immediately after have been vaccinated, but that message doesn't seem to have got through because we're still seeing these types of incidents taking place. Yes, and in in the discussion that I had with uh, Debbie Evans, we actually mentioned um, an incident in UK and one in America. Um, it would appear connected to uh, vaccine uh, vaccines and vaccine centres. Alex, I think you've got a point. The former Soviet Republic of Georgia, which has got uh, a healthy dose of scepticism about certain vaccines, has had a big problem because it is implementing a drive uh, to vaccinate at least its healthcare workers with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And two nurses, only one of whom has been widely reported internationally, uh, appear to have died as a consequence of the vaccine. I know that's a strong claim to make, but in this particular case, which is easily found uh, online, this is a 27-year-old, apparently previously healthy Georgian nurse, Maggie Bakradze. The surname is B-A-K-R-A-D-Z-E. If people search for Bakradze, anaphylactic shock, they will find details of this nurse being uh, paraded, as happened in the United States as well, uh, uh, post-inoculation, uh, saying there's nothing to be worried about. We all need the vaccine to get out of this situation. Within 48 hours, she is reported to have died of anaphylactic shock. And uh, contacts in Georgia tell me that there's at least one other known case of that. OK, th uh, thanks for that, Alex. While you were talking, somebody in our chat box has pointed out that there seem to be some well, that are being described as drive-through centres for vaccines. Now, I'm not sure whether that's in this country or overseas, but of course, if we've got these uh, problems with uh, sleepiness 
or fainting or loss of consciousness as an adverse effect, then, then there should be no drive-through centres. Um, well, let's uh, have a look at possibly one of the worst cases of uh, propaganda that I've seen uh, so far. Many people may have seen this already, but this is uh, a segment from EastEnders that's been doing the rounds uh, on social media at the moment. Just have a look at this. <laughs> what a wonderful day. Not in my house. Oh, kids, we'd have him. Chicken say what she likes. I mean, normally I'm with her all the way, but who knows what it's going to do to us in five, ten years' time? Well, let me tell you what I do know. Last year, I was lying down in a hospital bed, gasping for breath, thought it was all over. I wouldn't wish that on the worst enemy. Come in, man, and kill you faster than them facts. Some of the best scientists have worked on this, but you reckon you know better? How's that PhD working out for you, Karen? Yeah, well, I've got plenty of time to think about it. No, you're much younger than you. Oh, well, you want to worry about getting to my age if you carry on thinking like that? After everything we've been through this year, can't help some people. So, um, Alex, there's quite a lot to unpack there. The, uh couple of observations uh, initially. First of all, the the, uh, the people that are more sensible are the people from the BAM community. Uh, the person who's the uh, conspiracy theorist uh, is, you know, working class, white, possibly right wing. This is sort of the, the, the uh, scenario that, that the BBC is trying to set up here. Now, there are many reasons why they might be doing this. One of the, of course, is purely divisive in order to, to uh, split uh, communities apart from each other. Another that occurs is the fact that uh, the, the, the uh, vaccine hesitancy is highest amongst uh, BAME communities. Um, so they are uh, really communicating with the BAME communities by making the uh, the two BAME actors uh, the, the experts, in inverted commas there. But uh, I'm just wondering briefly what your what your thoughts are on that. They're, they're, <laughs> it, is, it is some pretty egregious propaganda. You know, Mike, in the very early 70s, um, there was a show set in that part of London, I think, or perhaps further out in the suburbs, called Love Thy Neighbour, which was about uh, one of these then new Jamaican immigrant families moving in and uh, cracking racist jokes at each other. And the BBC pulled it off air in the early 70s and said, we'll never do that kind of thing again. Half a century later, what are they doing there, just as you say, uh, telling the ethnic minority communities, this is your way to get one back on the white honky? Really, I mean, foreign viewers probably haven't understood the subtleties of that because they, to them, that's all Cockney accents. But if you look at the dress and listen carefully, it is a well-spoken uh, West Indies gentleman and a well-spoken South Asian lady using uh, proper, well, well-enunciated well varieties of English uh, with, a, obviously, an accent from their ethnic community. Who walks in? A slovenly underclass woman. That's what the actress is there to, to, uh, to promote or to, to represent, you know, with a gob open. And what does she say? I normally does what Dolly Parton tells me. I mean, how, how much more uh, dismissive 
of the, the native community, shall we say, uh, can the BBC scriptwriters get? It's pretty transparent there. And a lot of viewers are already saying in the chat box, uh, have they suspended realism? Where are the masks in this shop? Well, that, that's a very good question. Of course, the other thing to note, of course, she's, she's the smoker. Uh, well, there's all those things. I just wanted to add that the, the whole atmosphere of that segment that we've just watched is very aggressive. There's no love. There's no community between those people. And of course, what is the BBC doing? BBC is following exactly the behavioural psychology which the SAGE and the SPY B team suggested in, in the minutes of their meeting 22nd of May last year, where they said one of the things we need to do alongside ramping up fear is to turn communities on each other to get the communities to enforce the uh, you know the vaccination policy the lockdown policies so here is the bbc using aggressive divisive psychology in order to cause friction in communities um, and as i said before we came on air we should stop talking about the bbc and we should be talking about the bbc executives by name who are the people who are ultimately responsible for this it should be made personal uh, i mean uh, this is a good point you make and of course eastenders has been running this aggressive uh narrative for since it began well really. we, and, we've and... shown the statistics mike where people uh, over a great many years have been pointing out that eastenders and other bbc soaps are regarded as foul um unpleasant pieces of programming uh, and the, the many people hold them responsible for large parts of the breakdown of British society over the last 40 years. I, I would certainly hold them responsible. Well, let, no let's, question. Yes, let's uh, let's remind everybody of this then. This is, was an excellent piece of work that we highlighted uh, on the on the column last week uh, from Citizen Journalist's website. Uh, confirmed there wasn't a whole ward of COVID children, as claimed by Laura Duffel of King's College Hospital. Uh, and this was about a... Uh, uh, segment on Radio 5 Live uh, for hosted by Adrian Childs. It was also pushed out on a tweet uh, by BBC Radio 5 Live. Uh, and the point that, uh, uh, that the Citizen Journalist website was making was that they had uh, followed up on this and got the information from the various sources and discovered that, in fact, there was no uh, mass uh, burdening of children uh, on this particular hospital at all. Um, so can you confirm that uh, Laura Duffel, who was a uh, matron at King's College uh, Hospital, had made those statements to the BBC? Can you confirm that the ward, that uh, how many children would make the ward full? And the answer that came back uh, was that there were two children at the trust who were on the ward and so on. So it goes on. Well, look, uh, the BBC received complaints about this. Uh, they analysed the complaints and this is uh, what they said. They said that the following day, uh, following the uh, report on BC5 Live, the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health issued a statement which said, as of now, we're not seeing significant pressure from COVID-19 in paediatrics across the UK. Uh, and it emerged on subsequent inquiry that the interviewee had been speaking on the basis of very small numbers in her own hospital. In other words, she lied. It's as simple as that. Uh, uh, the ECU noted that the programme makers had not sought to establish the number of children involved or the severity of their symptoms. So the BBC took the word of the matron without confirmation. 
Uh, and while appreciating the difficulty of obtaining a corroborating medical view on a public holiday, so here comes That's the, the excuse, excuse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then uh, the programme uh, published another tweet the following day, which included the statement from the Royal College of Paediatrics, so that's all right. But nonetheless, uh, the uh, complaints were upheld uh, and uh, the BBC uh, has uh, well been spoken to very sternly, I'm sure. Uh, but what can we say about this? Well, this was absolutely fake news, this report. Uh, and I have to say well done uh, to the uh, Citizen Journalist website uh, for covering this in the way that they did because it was an excellent piece of work. Excellent piece of work and uh, terrible work, of course, by the BBC. But what is the BBC? It is the full-blown propaganda arm of the uh, British government at the moment. Just wanted to give people an overview of how we see the picture at the moment under COVID lockdown. So let's bring in a blank screen and... Uh, put the pieces on it. So the thing to remember is that at the moment, Westminster as a former government is effectively closed. Uh, although there are Zoom conferences uh, taking place, there is no proper debate where people are coming together to discuss these serious issues in UK. So our government effectively shuts down or at least the visible side of it because something is running policy uh, we can call that a government of occupation. I think you're going to be mentioning that a bit later, Mike. But uh, really, this 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 sector of our governing system is unknown to some extent. It's certainly unaccountable. We can bring in Boris Johnson, but I don't think anybody thinks he's running the country because he's got people behind him. And of course, what have we got at the moment? We've got this vast COVID uh, 19 smokescreen, which is dominating people's lives. They are not thinking past it. I can imagine many people today very upset they can't travel, or they're not going to be able to travel for the summer. Uh, we've got people dying sick, uh, frightened as to whether they should have a vaccine or not. And of course, who's in the wings of this? Well, it's Bill Gates. And I think we should never forget that this man has been brought into the heart of this government of occupation to make decisions about serious strategic policy. So let's put the pieces in. Well, the NHS has been completely restructured. People in the NHS who are talking to UK Column say it is now obvious that this is simply a corporate machine. And many of those very good NHS staff are also desperately concerned at what they now regard as a killing machine. Uh, that's their language, not mine, but we have no trouble understanding that. We've al already mentioned health. It's not just physical health, it's mental health. That's been severely damaged. The economy, well, I asked you this morning how you considered the economy, Mike, and you said the word destroyed was appropriate. So economy destroyed, education destroyed, and uh, society, well, we're a year into a curfew. There's no sign of that really lifting. Society has been fragmented, helped, of course, by the propaganda of the BBC. But on it goes, the police politicised and brutalised income the combined intelligence and security services and integrated is a better word as we'll discover later pardon integrated is a better word. integrated okay uh politicized but now being used against the uk public to the extent it takes russia today to put a good article out warning the uk public what's actually happening and in the corner we'll put the military the best word i could use was emasculated because of course we've got uh, more major cuts as the military is turned into some 
private army to be used around the world as uh, the government of occupation sees fit. But the thing to remember is who's being targeted in the uh, primary sense. Uh, well, it's the young, it's the elderly, it's the weak, and it's the infirm. And I'm just going to add here, uh, Bill Gates, he's only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, what is he actually doing? Why is he helping the government? These are some of the recent headlines at the moment. Bill Gates wants us to eat synthetic meat. Bill Gates supports chalk dust plan to fight global warming. This is emptying chalk dust into the uh, stratosphere to so-called uh, cool down the planet. Uh, Bill Gates, be open to ideas that seem wild to fight climate change. Somebody says they've been fact-checking Bill Gates, uh, but there's no substance to that claim. And here we've got another one about the chalk dust spraying. So we're just going to say, what did Boris Johnson and Bill Gates discuss about COVID behind closed doors? And until the UK public knows the answer to that question, we do not have a functioning government, uh, which is why we're seeing such huge problems in the country. Uh, now, Alex, uh, let's move over to the Netherlands. And uh, vaccines, of course, between the EU and the UK, a big topic. Um, I have my suspicions as to what's going on there. But uh, first of all, uh, the one of the major vaccine manufacturers is, of course, based in the Netherlands. So uh, bring us up to date on what's going on. It's a plant in Leiden, which is the Oxbridge city, as it were, in the Netherlands, which is where these pharmaceutical uh, companies often have their facilities nowadays, called Harlen. And it has received uh, a visit now by none less a figure than the European Union's Commissioner for the Internal Market, um, because this manufacturer, manufacturer of vaccines is, uh, as reported in English by DutchNews.nl, News for Expats and English speakers in the Netherlands, it's at the centre of a storm over what is called in inverted commas an EU export ban. So if we go and look on what's happening here in more detail, the partly EU-funded uh, news source Politico, but I'm quick to add, uh, I don't imply here any more bias than in other news sources, they do a pretty good job, have been behind the scenes talking to Dutch government figures off the record, and also here they are quoting a speech with this rather uh, aggressive folded arms posture, or defensive at least, by Thierry Breton, the commissioner in question of the EU that I mentioned. He's quoted here by Politico as saying that uh, since the uh, EU at, at commission level directed its member states, including the Netherlands, not to export from the Netherlands pending uh, the resolution of this dispute with Britain, um, AstraZeneca has not received any vaccine doses from this Harlan plant in Leiden. Uh, Politico goes further and, as I mentioned a moment ago, has been talking to Dutch government figures who confirm that they will do what the European Commission has told them to do if there is uh, no prospect of uh, a good outcome in talks at uh, UK-EU level on what share of the vaccines should go uh, to from Harlan to Britain and which should stay in the Netherlands to go to other European Union member states. There's one more slide on that section, I believe. Uh, which is that the Telegraph, uh, shall we say, um, something like an equivalent of the Daily Mail, uh, semi-populist uh, right of centre title, loathed by some, but uh, accurate in its headlines often, uh, is here in Dutch reporting that the EU is demanding the lion's share of COVID vaccines, that is the batches, from that Leiden factory, the Harlem plant that has been visited by Commissioner Thierry Breton. Uh, so I don't know how that's been reported in the British press, but it's been striking how this has come up. Uh, uh, well, and how it's been reported on the, on the continent. 
Well, just just briefly, what I'm wondering is whether you think this is uh, fallout from Brexit in reality, or is this really driving demand for vaccines in the EU? I mean, we've been hearing uh, over the last number of weeks that, for example, in Belgium, they have a they have a vaccination centre in Belgium capable of vaccinating 5,000 people per day, and they basically don't have anybody turning up to, to receive vaccinations there. Uh, so I'm wondering, is this genuinely a spat uh, related to Brexit, or is this really designed to one mechanism to try to drive demand? I would suspect more of the latter, Mike. I don't think I'll surprise you by saying that. I can only speak for the countries I know, Benelux in particular. Um, although there are, as I've just mentioned, uh, even production facilities, subcontractors for AstraZeneca uh, in Benelux, because it's always been a major pharmaceutical production base along with Germany and Switzerland, um, the uh, national consumption, even the health services and, and health workers in these countries are not usually, to my impression, uh, receiving the AstraZeneca uh, vaccination, but more often Pfizer. Uh, but I, I won't give, uh, you know, give account of the, the exact numbers there, but that is my uh, anecdotal impression. And in any case, people reading the news in French, Dutch or German, or indeed Italian, Spanish and Portuguese, have got uh, a less filtered uh, more uh, even-handed even uh, approach to information about the pros and cons of these individual vaccines than is the case if you're reading the news in English. That, I think, is the, is the real pinch point for take-up of these vaccines. So there is something of the, uh, the artificial demand in there, I think. And, of course, uh, we saw another possible pseudo-Brexit row with the UK just uh, a month or two ago when the Northern Irish border was unilaterally closed by the EU side. And again, this was done uh, at European Union commissioner level, in that case by the Latvian commissioner, Valdis Dombrovskis, without referring the matter to Ursula von der Leyen. So there is a bit of a pattern emerging, yes, that Brexit is a bit of a spectre to be dangled. But um, also going on to uh, further afield, but with, with a Dutch end to it, at least a, a, a Hague end, uh, news sources, including this one, Church Militant, I'm only using them because they have a fuller report than others, not because I want to necessarily recommend Christian sources above others, but Church Militants is a particularly good uh, write-up. Uh, it reports that Israel is uh, facing the Hague, that is the ICC, the International Criminal Court. There are many international courts in the Hague, and this one is the one that, according to the Rome Statute, can try cases of alleged genocide. Israel as a government has been reported by this organization, Ansheha Emet, the People of Truth, uh, to the ICC in The Hague for what uh, this Jewish organization is calling a vaccine holocaust. A long uh, article well worth uh, reading. David Scott and others have already been drawing attention to individual Israeli campaigners, including uh, some who've set up new parties on this issue. Uh, but as Church Militant goes on, and just the image is worth looking at alone, um, there is basically vaccine apartheid. And according to some of these people in Ansheha, I met a fully-fledged vaccine genocide about to start or holocaust. You know, this is obviously very sensitive language, but that is the impression of the, I think, quite religious Jews who are uh, putting this out. And emet, the Hebrew word for truth they're using there, is something like the Islamic use of the word haq. It means more like righteousness or or a fully-fledged truth rather than a narrow religious truth. So, uh, well, definitely one to watch. But the ICC, uh, here's another report on the same uh, case from uh, Global Research, uh, an ex excellent outfit in Canada. They're reporting that the ICC is going after Israel. Well, that is e over-egging the pudding. People often ask me uh, to cover international law stories like this, and they have high hopes. But um, the whole point about the prosecutor, who in fact has just changed at the ICC in The Hague, is that the prosecutor can accept 
uh, caseloads from others or can investigate on their own initiative, a so-called sua sponte case. Oftentimes, these come to nothing because they don't meet loyalty standards. So people shouldn't get their hopes sky high just because a case has been lodged and acknowledged with the ICC. Yeah. Alex, would it be unreasonable to say that uh, what we're seeing happen in Israel shows us the future for UK with the extent to which uh, controls over the vac uh, those who are vaccinated and those who are not are going to be imposed? It seems to me we're getting a snapshot of where they're trying to push it here. Trying to be as unsensational as possible about this and bearing in mind David Scott's wise counsel that Israel is a very fractured society, more fractured than any comparable economy in Western Europe or Australasia or North America. I would say yes, it's it's the perhaps the, the best test case or laboratory among the very advanced economies uh, for uh, an agenda of telling people you're not moving anywhere without your papers and your digital tracking because it has a small, largely compliant population. Um, the various strands of different secular and religious persuasions in Israel mm -hmm. are united because of the Holocaust memory in an idea that if our government and or our religious leadership, our community leaders tell us this is the thing to do, well, we will knuckle under and do it largely because it's a matter of uh, survival of the people. Uh, that is something that's missing in Western Europe. So, yes, and of course, geographically, too, uh, the, the concentration of population, the, the limited geographical depth of the country. Uh, means that there's nowhere to hide uh, in many cases. And don't forget the large impoverished underclass in Israel, uh, which is true of many Western countries as well these days. So that would not be stretching matters too much, I think. Uh, that's the idea would be if Israel, with its famous high-tech abilities, does it, then the likes of Canada, the United Kingdom, uh, other Western countries will follow suit. Yeah. Um, OK, uh, now, of course, uh, more uh, trouble in Bristol, apparently, last night. Uh, but uh, just to come back to the... Uh, coverage that we had of, of what happened at the weekend in Bristol. Quick correction, uh, because we showed this uh, picture of the uh, police car uh, and uh, the fact that it had been burnt out in Bristol. And we're asking about the fact that it was MOT'd. Why were the police uh, driving a car uh, on the streets on MOT'd? Well, it, it turns out, in fact, and if we didn't, if we didn't know this already, actually, we're completely forgotten about it. Uh, police cars don't get MOT'd. Uh, they're, they're exempt from MOT certificates because they have their own. Uh, High standard of maintenance. Uh, allegedly, yes. Yes. Uh, now, Alex, uh, the next one uh, I, I want to, to bring in here uh, because uh, you intended to cover this on extra time later on. But uh, I just thought it was worthwhile doing because uh, uh, one of the features of the lockdown protests that happened uh, on the uh, at the weekend was that they were extremely peaceful up until the point where at least the police uh, intervened, uh, not having any particular justification for intervening, but some quite brutal scenes uh, from the lockdown protests as the police decided to move in. Uh, but we've got a, a, sec a section of uh, text here from uh, the YouTube channel uh, from Piers Corbyn and his coverage of it. So um, aside from what he said about us, which is very nice, and thank you very much to Piers for that, what, what, uh, what did, were your main takeaways from this? Um, he was basically um, talking about the blurred lines that the Metropolitan Police have in many cases been observing between general members of the public exercising the freedom of assembly and protest, which is uh, arguably in, in, the, uh, in the human rights scheme, uh, 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 what's the word, a uh, uh, qualified right. And on the other hand, two other categories who repeatedly have been brutalized or spoken to brutally by the Metropolitan Police, who ought to have even more freedom to be in public. That is journalists and politicians. 
and in the case of Piers Corbyn, and indeed David Curtin, a member of the London Assembly, the City Assembly, who is campaigning to be the next London Mayor, uh, they have said we are actually holding political rallies with a view to the forthcoming election. And the Metropolitan Police line on that is that's fine. A bit like David Scott, who's regarded as halfway between pleb and politician because he's an alternative media. The line taken with David Scott, as we've covered recently, has been that's fine. You can express your opinions till you're blue in the face, but not here and not today. Go online. And the version of that that Mr. Corbyn got was uh, stand, stand there with one other campaigner and, and speak through your loudhailer to, to nobody and you won't be breaking the regulations. So utter cynicism there, of course. Yes. Uh, and we should mention, of course, Piers Corbyn also standing uh, for London Mayor. And uh, you can get more details on that at letlondonlive.org, which I believe is his uh, campaign website. Uh, but Alex, uh, let's just uh, bring this on, because, of course, there were lockdown protests at the weekend, not just in the UK, but across Europe as well. Uh, and, uh, well, we thought that this was quite an interesting little uh, clip doing the rounds on social media from the Netherlands. I think this was Amsterdam, wasn't it? Uh, and, uh... This was, this was the museum plane. And the whole point about this is, A, it's very difficult to get more than the footage because the Dutch have not really written it up. Uh, and B, this is not a particular political colour of veterans organisation. That is simply regular Dutch uh, uh, veterans, I think all from the land forces by the look of the berets, but different sections of it and some gendarmerie I can see there, wearing their service berets. Uh, but the whole point is they don't have a particular nationalist axe to grind. They're not associated with a party. And I have been pulling strings among Dutch contacts to see whether there's a write-up even in Dutch of what happened, but no, there isn't. Which perhaps is even more telling and, and promising than otherwise, because it shows something of spontaneous middle-of-the-road civic, national or patriotic uh, veterans saying, uh, we will stand in the, in the classic Voltairean language, defend your right to say what you have to say, uh, regardless of political persuasion. So, so, so perhaps something for veterans in Britain to consider. So Alex, what, what actually happened here? The veterans sort of in, uh, in put themselves between the police and other people who'd come out to protest. Is that what we're seeing in the picture? Exactly that. They formed this cordon because the techniques used, particularly when the Romeos, the, um, the, the plainclothes unit of agents provocateurs that date from 1980 in the Dutch police, when they come out of the, uh, the Black Mariahs, the police vans, what they try to do is form scuffles and kerfuffles where the protests have been too, too peaceful for the truncheon-wielding policemen's liking. Uh, and so they, they try to burst through police lines in one direction and the other in order to create moving scenes. And the veterans thought, well, if we form a solid cordon uh, between uh, the police attending and the protesters, then it will be too bleeding obvious what's gone on there uh, because there will be peaceful protesters behind us and the Romeos trapped in front of us with the rest of their police comrades who are in uniform. Yeah, yep. okay, thank you for explaining that. Well, it'd be interesting to see whether this technique catches on in UK. It will indeed. Now, uh, let's uh, let's briefly move on to this. A uh, lot of people uh, misunderstanding slightly what's going on with respect to the use of uh, data, our personal data, our health data by the NHS. Uh, up until, uh, what was it, about two years ago, it was not a requirement to, to, to uh, give consent for your data to be shared. It was presumed that you did not give your consent for data to be shared, but the government changed that to a, a requirement to actually opt out if you do not want your data shared. Um, so uh, this is what the uh, government website says. Your health records contain a type of data called confidential, confidential patient information. This data can be used to help with research and planning. Confidential patient information is when two types of information from your health records are joined together, something that can identify you and something about your health care or treatment. Uh, you can stop your confidential patient information being used 
for research and planning. And there's a form to fill in for you to do that. But this is where the, uh, the confusion came in because it goes on to say your choice will apply uh, will be applied by NHS Digital and Public Health England. And it goes on to say uh, all other health and care organisations by the 31st of March 2021. So some people are thinking that that means that they've got to opt out by the 31st of March 2021. But in fact, uh, it, was, it probably would have been better to opt out much earlier than this. You can opt out at any time. The key point here is here and the reason that the 31st of March 2021 date is there is because uh, the other health and care organizations were expected to respect your decision about whether to opt out or not by March 2020, but they were given an extra year because of COVID. And so they now are required to respect your wishes by the 31st of March 2021, uh, except if it's coronavirus data related, because the website is very clear about this, to help the NHS respond to coronavirus. Your information may be used for coronavirus research purposes, even if you've chosen not to share it. Any information used will be shared uh, appropriately and lawfully. Oh, really? Well, I would uh, think that uh, many of us might wish to, A, make sure that we have opted out, and B, uh, get in touch with the information commissioner and actually ch ask what uh, checks are being done to make sure that inf any information that's being shared in spite of your opt-out is being shared appropriately and lawfully and what controls there are on that. Um, my answer to that is very little, Mike, from personal experience. So I'd opted out, but I then found I was getting communications which indicated the NHS was sharing my data and it took a it took several phone calls through to NHS Digital to get them to remove my name from the database they were using. Um, I'll just add to this segment that somebody was kind enough to give us, where are we, this report. Um, so this is NHS privacy notice, the choose if data from your health records is shared for research and planning service allows you to choose whether or not confidential patient information can be used for research and planning purposes. As you've said, this section here also says unless the government really needs that data, in which case it'll take it. But the important thing was this, how to view and change your choice. And to keep this very short, there's a telephone number that you can call here um, to pull out. So if you detect that your data is being shared and you don't want it, here's a number that you can call in order to get something done about it. We'd like to say uh, very nicely to our audience, if you feel that this is an important issue and you want to phone that number, we would like to hear of your experiences and what sort of response you get from the NHS. And as UK Colin would always say, please be polite and respectful, but firm. We'll be interested to see how the NHS responds. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And also please do share any material you find uh, on the various platforms, uh, plus the website and so on. Okay, and thank you to the uh, viewer that sent us this. Now, I had seen this, but quite a long time ago, a little app circulating in communities called the Nextdoor app. Uh, when I saw this thing, I thought this is just hoovering up data. So on the left of your screen with the yellow tab, this is a letter that came through the door. Your neighborhood is now using a free app called Nextdoor. 
sorry, next door, West Derby Village, and you should join too. It's the neighborhood hub for useful information, such as local businesses, recommendations, lost pet notifications, safety updates, etc. Then it gave you details as to how to uh, load the app. And uh, the person said to us uh, that they were fascinated that this was something for local communities, apparently, but they said owned by million multimillionaires with shares in Walmart and other big companies need to get on to it. I'm just going to say gently, I think there is something here. And if anybody else can help out the research as to what this thing really is and what it's doing, we'd certainly like to know. Now, on a positive note, thanks to all your generosity, uh, but I can say that um, the Lynn Thayer Fund has got up to 23,247.35 pence. That's as of Monday. And this is as a result of them having to restart the uh, crowdfunder because the original one was pulled. So it's just wonderful that so many people have made a contribution. And of course, uh, we're not sure at the moment of how much Lynn's um, legal defence will cost. Uh, so if you haven't contributed and feel you can, please do. And also, of course, ultimately, uh, David Noakes will also need assistance with his legal defence. And I'm sure many people would want to help there as well. Uh, right, Alex, let's move back to the Netherlands then. And uh, what's been going on with elections? Total indecisiveness and splintering of the uh, vote in the Dutch uh, House of Representatives, the Tweede Kamer, the lower house. Uh, we have just had our general election to Parliament here, at least to the um, directly elected lower chamber. And you can see that of the four parties uh, that are on screen, because they are the top four in votes, um, none has got anything like uh, a substantial proportion of the 150 seats in the lower house. It's quite a small chamber. Uh, the four parties on screen are the only ones, uh, or the ones with the legend on screen, are the only ones to have got over 10 seats apiece. Uh, the blue VVD is not actually a Conservative Party, but the pro-business secular Liberal Party uh, of the Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, who's probably going to go on and form another coalition and be the longest serving Prime Minister uh, ever here. D66, which now has uh, just shy of 25 out of 150, so a sixth of the seats, uh, is a pretty aggressively uh, pro-euthanasia, pro-abortion, um, pro-end-of-life decisions, um, pro-EU party, which has really rocketed up the ratings. And its leader, Sigrid Kark, was one of the first to welcome Joe Biden's election, as she was quite certain he had been elected on the very night in November of the US election. She's one to watch. Uh, but the, the collapse, if you look at the, uh, the, the, the next slide with the uh, development over time of two decades, the collapse of the Christian Democrats, not particularly that they're Christian, but that they're the equivalent of middle of the road uh, or, or, or Tory party, is quite marked. If you look at the 2002 general election, the green colour is the Christian Democrats. They dominated everywhere except the Bible Belt, the orange flecks in the middle, and uh, some communists in the far north. By 2010, the highly populated west of the country, the Randstad, had already stopped voting for the Christian Democrats, which uh, until about 2000 routinely got a third of the seats and had uh, gone over to vote for the um, VVD instead. And by this election we've just had last week, uh, that has been complete. So uh, you see this reflected in Germany and Austria as well, uh, the, the complete collapse of anything that calls itself Christian or conservative, but also of the traditional left-wing parties, uh, which are losing out, particularly among younger people, in favour of really very radical student-style parties uh, that want death on demand, really.
staying on the continent, uh, a rather interestingly named lady, Charlotte Gerrish, of Gerrish Legal uh, in France, so I, I expect she's the uh, the company owner there, is reporting in the Law Society Gazette, thank you to the viewer who sends me many interesting things from the Law Society Gazette, that France is the latest country, the Netherlands being another here, uh, to get in on the lucrative act of uh, allowing two continental parties to a civil or business dispute to use English common law to resolve it. So she says that the Paris Bar, that's the Association of Advocates of course, has been keen to embrace rules allowing solicitors, that's uh, lawyers under English law, permanently to practice English law and international law in France as a foreign legal consultant and by allowing solicitors to take exams to re-qualify as French avocat, and she goes on, this is clearly a strong recognition that despite Brexit, we often hear that phrase, but I think she means it uncynically here, common law and English law will still be a leading approach for the world's most successful companies. And I think I put one more quotation of hers there, yes. She says, who better to advise on common law agreements and assist during any disputes than a fully qualified English solicitor? even if the matter involves parties based in France. So what she's getting at, and I'm not being cynical about Charlotte Gerrish here, not just because she's your namesake, Brian, but I think it's an honest piece, is that she's saying uh, it, that it's been many iterations of this in the past. The British uh, realise that they can punch above their economic weight by, by selling their, their suavity, their panache, as the French say. So what they're doing in this case, a bit like what we do in security and defence, is saunter into the continent um, and say, don't worry, you have a veritable anglais here to resolve your, your disputes. Because of course, just like British food, uh, much laughed at abroad, you know, or the ingredients, same with British law, it is re recognized on the continent as being of superior practicality and usefulness and clarity for particularly business deals. So the common law, though it may be dying in Britain, has a new lease of life in many of the world's major economies now uh, as uh, the, the go-to legal system uh, to resolve disputes. So an interesting development there, I think, I think is worth watching. Yes, okay. Uh, well, now, of course, the question that on many people's minds is, are they going to be able to go to the continent or anywhere else this summer? Uh, and, uh, well, the answer is foreign holidays. Forget it. Uh, it ain't going to happen. Uh, of course, at the moment, uh, we're not allowed to travel because of uh, a so-called stay-at-home rule. Uh, but that ends uh, on Monday. Tomorrow, as you know, the uh, emergency legislation is going to be extended uh, by Parliament uh, because I predict that's a foregone conclusion, despite the uh, opposition that there is in some parties. Uh, but uh, Boris Johnson has said it's too early uh, to, talk, to set out uh, new rules for what's going to happen in the summer. He's going to make uh, give more information on the 5th of April, apparently. But in the meantime, they're going to push through under this legislation uh, to be voted on tomorrow, uh, a £5,000 fine for anyone who's in England and wants to travel abroad without good reason. Uh, we'll come on to the good reasons in a second. Uh, so uh, a reasonable excuse is, uh, is a good reason, apparently. Um, so let's have a look at them. Uh, you can avoid the £5,000 fine in inverted commas because of course the fixed penalty notice is not a fine at all. Uh, you can avoid the £5,000 fine if you're travelling to a destination in the common travel area. So you're allowed to go to Ireland, uh, but uh, that, so that's no problem. But you're not allowed to go to Ireland if you're using Ireland as a staging uh, for somewhere else. So uh, it's only if you're going to the common travel area and staying there, uh, you, or if you're traveling for work, uh, or if you're providing voluntary or charitable services, or if you're enrolled on a course of study, uh, or if you're a sports person or a coach, uh, or if you're fulfilling a legal obligation. 
Um, or if you're dealing with the purchase, sale, letting or rental of a residential property, uh, or if you're seeking medical care, or if you're attending a birth and there's a couple of other medical related clauses there, or to attend a wedding, uh, particularly if you happen to be uh, the bride or the groom, you're allowed to go. Uh, or if you're visiting children, uh, those are children, maybe they don't live with you, but they're living with another parent and you want to go and visit your children, you will be allowed to do that. Or if you're voting in an election, uh, or if you're the child of someone who has a reasonable excuse. So if you're any of those, uh, you will be allowed to avoid the £5,000 fine. That's very generous of them, uh, according to this legislation. Uh, but uh, if you intend to go on a foreign holiday, in the meantime, you can forget it. Uh, but uh, we'll find out what the final position will be uh, on the 5th of April, apparently. So this comes out my, after many people went and booked holidays in the last few weeks after they perceived that we were going to come out of lockdown. They rushed off and booked holidays. And of course, all the travel companies have paid for their adverts for people to be able to travel abroad. So you can almost see that this is another planned attempt by the government of occupation to destroy the whole of the travel industry. But certainly we're now on a prison island. Well, not only that, but of course, there's a psychological effect on us as individuals because we don't because the, 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 the rules are so complicated it's impossible to know whether you're actually entitled to go or not, or entitled, of course you're entitled, but you're actually allowed to go or not under the legislation. It's very yeah. difficult to find out. So people are left in a completely confused situation. Uh, and in fact, the BBC this morning doing everything to maintain that confused situation because they had somebody on complaining about the fact that they, uh, the claim that they couldn't go uh, to visit their daughter in, in Germany who was having a baby, when in fact the legislation quite clearly says that that would be considered a reasonable excuse. Um, so uh, uh, confusion is the rule of the game. Well, look, let's move on to uh, foreign uh, affairs. Uh, Alex, and we'll begin with, uh, with <laughs> Jeremy Hunt here, uh, who's tweeted out, uh, the world's most experienced diplomat is also the one I admire most, particularly for his wisdom on dealing with China. Dr. Henry Kissinger is 97 and still going strong. Tune in on Thursday at 5 p.m. when I interview him for Chatham House about pandemics, China, and the future of democracy. I'm looking forward to that. What an interesting trifecta there, Mike. And of course, democracy is the theme of A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, the podcast that you and I and David Scott have just revived recording. So in the coming days, there may even be two halves of an episode five coming up addressing the issue of democracy. But Jeremy Hunt, of course, after spells as the culture secretary and the health secretary in Her Majesty's government, now chairs the health committee of parliament. So at least of the commons. Uh, so uh, as usual, advice uh, to UK column viewers would be uh, subscribe on various social media platforms to your friendly local think tank, whether it be Chatham House, the IIEA in Dublin, the uh, Royal Society of Edinburgh, leave polite and reasoned comments on their YouTube channel directly under or even during the live stream the chat, the, the chat box uh, in, in, of their comments because they're only live listened to by a few hundred people each. Uh, you can really swing things by putting uh, targeted measured arguments in there uh, while the discussion is live or shortly thereafter and, and many people will see it. Um, well, uh, the it, NATO is back, apparently, now that Joe Biden's back, NATO is back and uh, going strong. Uh, here's Dominic Raab arriving for the uh, NATO Defence Minister's meeting uh, yesterday. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, it's the Russians was the theme of the, uh, the thing. China wasn't mentioned so much, although it was implied, uh, but certainly Russia front and centre with respect to this. So there's Dominic arriving. Let's have a look and see. Uh, what he was, uh, the points that he was making. Uh, this is an important opportunity for NATO allies to gather together and discuss uh, the value of our alliance in a world where democracies are under threat. 
Uh, from authoritarian powers and non-state actors who use cyber threats and malicious new technology to sabotage the rules-based order. Just pay attention to the language that's being used here. He said the UK as a leading defense and diplomatic power fully backs NATO as a strong military deterrent to the threats from Russia. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg, for his part, had this to say, Russia's aggressive actions constitute a threat to Euro-Atlantic security, assertive and authoritarian powers challenge the rules-based international order. You would think they were singing from the same hymn sheet. Well, indeed, of course they are, because it's, uh, it's all about the rapid response mechanism, which is all about having a common narrative, a common thread, which is pushed through by all and sundry. And uh, according to the uh, government's press release, uh, Rab was there to try and generate some real anti-Russian sem uh, uh, re uh, sentiment amongst all his allies in, in NATO. So, uh, uh, Alex, I wonder, just before we come on to, to this in, uh, a little bit more, what your thoughts are? Or what, what's going through the Russians' minds at this point? <laughs> the Russians are laughing all the way to the treaty signature because uh, if, pe if people are watching particularly Sergei Lavrov's trip to Guilin in southern China recently and how he's been fated, and all the developments behind the scenes, um, the Russians are now on the cusp of uh, a really strategic alliance that they have been driven into the Chinese arms uh, to, to, uh, to conclude. Uh, and they, they will basically share their advanced weaponry uh, and uh, other defense know-how in, in, in exchange for Chinese muscle, basically. So they're, they're in a different league of self-defense than they were before. Uh, the Russians have not got to the point openly of saying to the Americans and the EU completely stuff your rules-based international order, though as I've covered recently Lavrov has recently started saying I'm sick of Joseph Borrell, the EU's foreign minister de facto. He can go back home with his tail between his legs. But the Chinese have got to that point now. So last week in Anchorage, Alaska, or indeed it was at the beginning of this week, uh, Mr Biden's uh, Secretary of State, so his foreign minister, chaired a delegation and rather ill-advisedly lectured a Politburo member, the head of the Chinese delegation, on this precise point. You lot are breaking the rules-based international order, not the rule of law or any treaties, but this new Anglo-American term. And the body language was very severe from that Politburo man. You might have seen it. He just got his hand out and said, you are not in a position of strength to tell us to follow your rules-based international order. So the Russians are just one stage shy of being that undiplomatic, but the tables have turned. Uh, and although uh, although NATO didn't mention China, sp China specifically, we know they are reorienting themselves towards China with their NATO 2030 policy. Uh, but this is uh, war on the rocks here. Uh, a great new game finds the South Atlantic, first of all. Yes. So war on the rocks is a foreign policy and particularly security policy uh, platform of largely honest reporting and, and opinion. And uh, what's interesting here is that China has, as it were, curled around the bottom of the Pacific Ocean uh, at Cape Horn and is very interested in Argentine protein, obviously, because it wants beef for its population, fish for its population. Uh, if you're a little more esoteric, it may be uh, interested in Antarctic resources uh, and other things in Antarctica that they're after. But anyway, Britain used to think it was just between us and the, the Argies for the uh, South Georgia, uh, South Shetland Islands, Falkland Islands area and the hydrocarbons involved. But no, China's involved now too, because the point there is that the US Coast Guard, which I thought the clues in the name, it's supposed to operate in US territorial waters. The US Coast Guard and Guyana uh, did an operation in the Caribbean. The US Coast Guard ship in question then went all the way down to the tip of South America uh, and asked Buenos Aires, um, would you mind if we did uh, a joint operation uh, in your waters, acting as a Coast Guard, uh, scaring off illegal Chinese fishermen? And the RG said, no, we're not up for that this time. So here's the Spanish language original from Clarín, a Buenos Aires newspaper. 
the uh, Cancillería, the uh, the foreign ministry of uh, Argentina, told the U.S. Coast Guard on this occasion, "You can pray, pay a fen." friendly visit, visits to port in uh, Buenos Aires, but we are not going to facilitate any kind of joint exercise with you telling the Chinese to get out of our waters, illegal or otherwise. Um, okay, now let's, uh, let's just uh, quickly come to the EU, because the EU has decided that they're going to establish a European peace facility, investing in peace and security. What's this all about? Well, it's billions of euros budget for, the, I think, five billion in the first six years uh, to be used to help partner countries uh, so this is all about uh, uh, making sure that uh, peace is promoted by promoting war. Um, so they are going to uh, uh, finance EU actions abroad uh, that don't just have a defence implication, but uh, general military implications. Uh, well, just by coincidence, do you believe in coincidence? But here's a coincidence, because with the uh, publication of the defence in a competitive age uh, section of the Integrated Review on Monday, uh, it said this, or at least the government said this, over the next four years, a share of £120 million will be invested into the Ranger Regiment, enabling it to undertake roles traditionally carried out by special forces. They can be expected to be involved in collective deterrence, such as training, advising, enabling and, part, uh, and accompanying partner forces. So, Alex, uh, we're supposed to be out of uh, EU defence. We're supposed to be completely separate from that, uh, pursuing our own path. And yet... We find the same announcement from the same from the two uh, governments being made at the same time, and uh, but that's just a coincidence. Is it being done at think tank level or Ministry of Defence level? It's not entirely certain from occasion to occasion, but there certainly is coordination. And I expect you'll be going into a little more detail about the defence portion of the strategic review, which came out on Monday. But one salient point there is that uh, Britain's Warrior tank and the upgrades to it have been cancelled by Lockheed Martin. Now, uh, for anyone who grew up, as I did in Bedfordshire, the whole point there is the uh, the firm in Ampetil, Bedfordshire, which I used to pass on the school bus every day for years, which is probably going to lose some jobs or even close, uh, employing just shy of a, a thousand men in, in, in Bedfordshire. Uh, the whole point is, in the past, it was called Hunting Engineering. It was a local British firm, like so many that, for example, David Ellis has worked for. And uh, before you knew it, sometime after I uh, grew up and, and left the area, uh, the sign changed from Hunting Engineering to Lockheed Martin. So the, the small to medium skilled subcontracting engineering partners for the uh, the British Armed Forces, for example, as David Ellis has never tired of drawing attention to, they are already subsumed into the big seven US contractors uh, in many cases. So you know, effectively, European Defence Union with its industrial strategy and now Britain explicitly saying that uh, its uh, its Tempest program is about safeguarding defence industry. They'll never say British defence industry. The, the whole point is that you know, it, it's, it's all coordinated between the US headquarters uh, of these contractors and the European and British basis uh, of those contractors. It's become a single amorphous blob. Uh, integrated is the word, Alex, because it was the integrated review. But let's just uh, have a look a little bit more about this because this is the basis on which this whole new defence initiative is, is running. And we've seen this type of language from other people within the military, uh, from uh, Nick Carter, Chief of the Defence Staff, and from uh, uh, Lord Flashheart, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, uh, Mark Carlton-Smith. Um, and uh, this, this is uh, really what they're saying. The notion of war and peace as binary states has given away uh, to a continuum of conflict, in other words, a spectrum. It's it's a bit like uh, it's nineteen eighty four. Well, it's, I mean, bit, it's it's like it's like gender, Brian. The, the no binary states. It's all become fluid. It's all become yeah. fluid. 
uh, requiring us to prepare our forces for more persistent global engagement uh, to, and constant campaigning, moving seamlessly from operating to war fighting. They say the armed forces will no longer be held as a force of last resort, but become more present and active around the world, operating below the threshold of open conflict to uphold our values and secure our interests, partner our friends and enable our allies, whether they're in Euro-Atlantic, the Indo-Pacific or beyond. The look, uh, another thing that's been announced here is two new uh, sections uh, in, well, in the cabinet office, it seems. So let's just look at the state of the uh, government of occupation uh, at the moment. Let's put the graph on screen. So if we take the, uh, the graphic on screen, if we take the National Security Council uh, and, and the cabinet office uh, there at the top, uh, then obviously on the left-hand side, we've got the various intelligence agencies, GCHQ, uh, MI5, MI6. Possibly this is an inappropriate place to have it, but anyway, the Joint Biosecurity Centre is there anyway. But then underneath the Cabinet Office, we've got all the censorship uh, and narrative building stuff like the Rapid Response Unit, the National Security Communications Team, 77 Brigade, 13 Signals, uh, the Dep Department of Culture, Media and Sport Fake News Unit, uh, the FOI Clearinghouse, which of course is all about making sure that the correct answers to freedom of information requests go out for people that are on a special list. Uh, but if, if they don't want to give you an appropriate answer to make sure that they've given the, the correct uh, refusal. Uh, but we've got two new organizations now, the Counterterrorism Operations Center. Um, and this is uh, apparently going to significantly improve our ability to thwart terrorists while also dealing with actions of hostile states. It will bring together counterterrorism police, the intelligence agencies and the criminal justice system to coordinate the government's response and resources in a state-of-the-art facility to improve our speed of response to terrorist incidents. But as it says, not just terrorist incidents, actions of hostile states. Um, and so this is fusion doctrine and action because it's bringing police, intelligence agencies and the criminal justice system together as one. Uh, and finally, the Situation Centre. Uh, and this uh, Situation Centre is going to be based in the Cabinet Office. It's all about data and analytics. It's going to build on the lessons of the COVID pandemic to improve the use of data and anticipate and respond to future crises. Um, but it's also going to be a sort of White House style situation room similar to we saw when we saw when they were blowing up bin Laden or allegedly blowing up bin Laden when Hillary Clinton was cheering, if you remember that photograph. Nine, nine million pounds going into this office. It's going to be based right next door to Cobra uh, and uh, in the basement of the cabinet office. Uh, and it's going to allow Boris Johnson to do just exactly uh, what Hillary Clinton do, did because uh, Boris will be able to sit there with screens all around him and watch the effects of uh, drone attacks and so on. Um, so Alex, uh, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on how this infrastructure is building itself, um, but uh, we were asking earlier who's who's controlling policy. I think we're getting a hint here, aren't we? Well, yes, because the Cabinet Office, as we're going to go into more and more detail about in our Dissidents' Guides to the Constitution series, you can follow it best on ukcolumn.org slash constitution. The Cabinet Office claims to be the civil servants just working for the ministers who have responsibility through parliament. There's so many deceits there. Uh, but the cabinet office has clearly supplanted everything else here. Uh, in the years I was in counterterrorism operations, not that long ago, there would be no operational phase, pre-arrest, post-arrest or anything judicial, at which you would need to have intelligence officers, basically spooks, in the same planning or team or room or uh, conversation as the judicial people who would follow up. There's clearly a separation there. 
Uh, but, you know, taking the idea of the police uh, operation centre and getting ready for the raid, the knock, that is the, the paradigm that's come in here. Otherwise, there is no point in having troops basically being commanded by the Cabinet Office rather than the Ministry of Defence. Uh, you know, the, the Cabinet Office people have run away with themselves here and they want to be watching helmet cam footage of people being slotted by special forces and, you know, high-fiving each other possibly. Do they think they're in the West Wing? You know, we're not a presidential system. The Cabinet Office, if it's now commanding troops, is the whole crown in one space, you know, which we're supposed to have separated out in our constitution. It's the judiciary, the executive and the legislature all in one room, you know, star chamber plus plus, effectively. So we've never had anything like this in any English speaking country. Even the Americans didn't have that kind of sit sen situation center in Virginia until after 9-11. Uh, but the thing that worries me most is what single official can command spooks and troops and lawyers. That does not make any constitutional sense anywhere in the common law world or in Europe. I'd, I'd just add to that, Alex, the thing which uh, I find very sinister is they're talking about expansion of special forces. They're using the uh, thousand figure, a thousand thousands. Um, obviously, the special forces operations have always been out of sight of the general public in UK. Maybe we get a glimpse that something is going on, but it's always under the Official Secrets Act. So now we've got a private army. We've got this government of occupation via the Cabinet Office running a private army uh, which is going to be employed where the UK public are never going to be told what's actually going on. No, I think that's absolutely it. You know, is, is the Cabinet Office actually not just, uh, should we say, spooked out by the Crown Office north of the border? Uh, we know from some of the disclosures around Salmond and Sturgeon that they did at one point say, are you sure you want to go ahead with this plan, Crown Office, Scottish Government? It may be that they're now drawing inspiration from James Wolfe and his Wolfe Pack and thinking if only we could Scottish Government style or Scottish system style merge everything into a single room. Uh, it, it's not going to end well, shall we put it that way? Um, OK, well, look, let's just uh, end uh, with this one, uh, Alex, uh, on the defence issue. Uh, the question is, how many F-35s are we going to get? Now, this has been sort of doing the rounds of various uh, media for a number of months now, with the latest UK headlines uh, suggesting that we're only going to take uh, 45 or 46 instead of the 138. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's Defence News reporting? What they're majoring on here is that behind the scenes, uh, when there are not announcements that we're going to take, in this case, 138, then the producers are not going to take the British government seriously. This is to the extent that it's still American as a country. Uh, the, the producers of the F-35 Boeing are not going to take Britain seriously uh, if a certain number isn't uh, taken. So they're suggesting that in private an undertaking must have been given by this stage that we were going to buy 138. Yet out comes the big set piece defence review on Monday and it notoriously, notably doesn't mention 138. It just says we're going to buy a rather more than we have at present. Well, A, this will render our uh, Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carriers uh, rather useless. Uh, well, Brian can talk more about that perhaps. But B, it may mean that we are going to find that the producers of the F-35, many question marks over its usefulness, uh, will we'll get cold feet or not regard the Brits as, as good for their word. Uh, so it may be the last time that we even have the opportunity of buying what some people are calling this white elephant uh, of a fighter. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say I'm not going to comment today because there's too much to discuss. We, we can easily do another section talking about this in, 
this aircraft and what this actually means. But I, I think we're just seeing a total mismatch. The government is talking about strengthening defence, but what it's actually doing is dramatically weakening defence, but building a private army. So lots of things. Mm. Are we allowed to mention a humorous subject to uh, go on? I think our audience deserves it today. Okay. Here we go. So the Daily Mail is saying that locals are furious that Winchester University is going to erect a £24,000 statue of Greta Thunberg. This is what every uh, university town needs. I can see you looking a bit puzzled there, Alex. So let's have a look at the story. Um, we're, we're going to say that Daily Mail fails to investigate this, this story at all. It does put some comments from people. So people in the local area are clearly puzzled and not very happy. Um, one said that a sculpture of a well-known local would have been more would have got more support from Winchester residents. And she suggested somebody who collected a lot of money um, uh, selling the homeless paper. And uh, we've got another uh, one here. Michelle Coombs said, I think the sculpture itself is very good, but Greta has no connection with Winchester, or am I wrong? Uh, this one, Simon Dixon said the statue was a total waste of money and others questioned whose bright idea it was in the first place. Simon did say, well, maybe it's more relevant to students because students uh, are more tied into Greta. Um, and there were more comments taking the mickey out of the whole thing underneath. But I'm just going to say here, the problem with this is, is these people don't understand what's actually taking place. Um, and what you need to look at is where the funding is coming from. And this brings us into, amongst other things, for the complex, there's a, been a 30 million uh, loan from the Triodus Bank, Europe's leading sustainable bank. And why do we need to pay attention to that? Well, we get a hint from this lady, Rebecca Pritchard, who was head of business banking. She said there's a huge opportunity to promote large-scale positive change in the education system. So in the background to the statue coming up, if people can't understand the statue, there's actually a political change being pushed in. And she goes on to say that higher education is a cornerstone to building a more sustainable and inclusive society. So I'm going to suggest to our audience this is nothing to do with just the statue of Greta Thunberg. This is to do with a much wider global policy. And I'm going to pop this on screen to remind people that it was a gentleman called Danny Bamping who was fighting this type of socio-political um, manoeuvring in Plymouth. Uh, he was tackling the renaming of a street. But this is the subject that people need to get their heads around, which is intersectionality. So if you don't understand these strange things, do some research into this and you'll start to see why we're seeing this bizarre uh, bizarre artwork happening and we're also seeing our culture being destroyed. Uh, the news programme isn't getting any shorter, Brian, is it? Well, no, but uh, we're in serious days, <laughs> yeah, Mike, so yeah, I think absolutely. we should just we should push it out if we've got it. Yeah. Okay, I think we'll end there. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I just want to say that no doubt somebody will be saying that the lady from Gerrish Legal will be my long-lost long sister or some other relative, but I'm going to say, no, that's not true. And we'd like to say a big thank you to everybody who's sending us those messages of support because there's been a dramatic increase. Uh, back in 10 minutes for extra if you're on the UK column live stream. Okay, thanks See very much. Bye-bye.